Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are feeling a bit sentimental now as we watch that video of a full church. And we can't wait to be able to worship with each other once again in each other's presence. But for the time being, we'll take what we can get. And being in your presence is the most important thing. So please join us now. Give us your spirit. Help us to understand your word. May we be lifted up and drawn closer to you. And in the end, may somebody make a decision for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I really want to start by recapping last month's sermon. As you know, we are finishing our series on family today. And it just so happens that this series took place in the month of February. It ended there, and then this is the last sermon in that series. But the previous sermon that we had was on parenting in a metamodern world. And so I want to start there by just giving a recap. We, we used Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 as the backdrop, and we learned three things in that message on that Sabbath. First of all, that godly parents establish order in their family. They are responsible for leading their children in the way of God so that when they come of age, they can make their own decision for Jesus Christ. Christian, excuse me, children are not in charge in the home. Parents are. If you remember that, say amen. Okay. <laughs> Number two, honor transcends obedience. We give honor and deference to those who we revere and respect, and when children honor their parents, they are positioning themselves for a serious blessing. This does not end when we grow up and leave our parents' home either. We should honor them while they are alive and honor their memory even after they fall asleep in Jesus. Honor transcends obedience. And then the third thing we learned in the sermon, Parenting in a Metamodern World, good parents don't exasperate their children. <laughs> exasperate means not to provoke your children. And we learned three different things, three different tips we got on how to not provoke your children. The first one was, don't over-shelter your children. In other words, don't be a helicopter parent. Now, I want to make sure this is clear. I think it's okay to hover over your child when they're one and they're learning how to walk. It's okay to try to keep them from hitting their head on the floor. But that's not the same posture you should have as a parent as they get older and maybe they're in their teens or go to college. Being a helicopter parent is not a good thing. Over-sheltering your child is not good for you as a parent. The second tip, resist the urge to compare your child to other children, especially their siblings. Your child is unique. God created them in a particular way. Recognize your child for who, or she, uh, for who he or she is, and don't try to compare them to somebody else, especially not their sibling. And the third tip was... Don't form your child into your image. Your child was created in the image of God, not in your image. Just because they look or sound like you doesn't mean God meant them to be you. God has a plan for them, specific to them. So don't exasperate your children. That was the previous sermon in the F is for Family series. And now we've come to the final message in our series. And I'm sorry that it took so long to get here but we are here nonetheless. 
And I think it is fitting that I am the only pastor in the sanctuary today and that my wife and children are not here with me, so I am standing in solidarity today with all of my singles. (laughs) I want to begin this way. (laughs) I wondered if that joke would land. I'm glad it did. The guys in the booth liked it. (laughs) I want to begin this way. I conducted a survey last week, and I posted the survey on Facebook And I was very pleased to have received 150 completed survey responses. So if you were one of those 150, I want to just thank you right now. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking time to fill out this survey. I wanted to make sure that there was a particular way of thinking about this. And there's a way that I wouldn't have any connection to. But you gave me that connection uh, by filling out the survey. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. As I examined the surveys... I found some very interesting things, and I took note that varying responses came from various types of people, and I saw that single people all interact differently and have different experiences about what it means to be single. I learned many things, but chief among them is that there is a noticeable pattern in how single people view and interact with married people. I want to pause for a second and just say, I hope that you didn't change the channel if you are not single. Because you're going to learn something today if you are married that's going to help you as you interact with your friends who are unmarried. They have a common sort of thing that I found, a common theme within these surveys about how they interact with married people. There were some common misconceptions about what it means to be singled, single that married people hold, and many respondents reported that married people often misunderstand them. I even learned, I'm sad to say it, that I am sometimes a perpetrator of some of these misconceptions, unwittingly, but a perpetrator nonetheless. We'll come back to that at the end of the message today. But I want to share some of the findings that we had with this survey. So the title of the survey was The 21st Century Single, and here is the caption that I used to explain it so that if anybody found this survey on the ground, they would know what it is that I'm trying to do. Here's what it says. Being single in a 21st century world can be daunting for some and liberating for others. To better ascertain the perception and identify potential misconceptions about single life, please fill out the following anonymous survey. Of the 150 respondents, let me just say right now, I am not surprised, and you won't be either, that 14.7% of the respondents were male. Only 22 males responded to this survey. And 83, excuse me, 85.3% were female. 128 females filled out this survey. Not surprising, based on what we know about demographics in our world and in the church as well. The largest age bracket to respond was the age of 25 to 34 at 39%. Next was 35 to 44 at 36.7%. We had 12 respondents from the 45 to 54 age group, 11 who were the 55 to 64 age group, 8 who were 65 or older, and only 5 from the 18 to 24 age group. So the two biggest demographics 
took up the age bracket of 25 to 44. That was basically the two biggest that answered this survey. Just to give you an idea of who it is we're talking about that we're thinking of in this particular survey. In the status category, 70% we had who had never been married, and then 28% were divorced, and only 2% in the widow or widower category. So you see almost well, the biggest percentage, 70% of the surveyors, uh, people that took the survey, are not married and never been married. I would share some of the findings of some of the actual questions. The very first question I asked in the survey was, how do you feel about being single? And here were the responses. 4% said, by the way, these were uh, predetermined answers that you had to pick from. 4% said, the freedom is amazing. I love it. 12% said, I hate it here. I'm over being alone, over dating, and definitely losing hope. 27.3 responded, I want to meet someone, but I'm not in a huge rush. And 49.3 said, it's okay, but it's honestly getting old. I want to find someone to share my life with. As I said, those are predetermined responses. And so because that is the case, I also included an other line. And on that line, you could fill in whatever you wanted to say, just in case one of those responses didn't quite get it for you. And so we had several people respond in that other line to the question, how do you feel about being single? Here's what one of them said. The longer I'm single, the more I think something is wrong with me. It can be very lonely and difficult to have faith that God is working on my behalf. I believe while not believing. Another respondent had this to say. It's okay, but it's not okay. I don't understand why I'm not being blessed and can't find a comparable mate. Yet another said this, I'm not in a rush because I've lost hope. Then this one, I feel all of the above at different moments. <laughs> a few more unique ones to the question, how do you feel about being single? One person said this, I would select a third response, but add to it that I'm very cautious and concerned because I have two young children. I am hesitant about having anyone near them. Another one said, at this age, I think finding someone is almost impossible, so marriage isn't a reality anymore. Companionship is cool, though. One more to this question. I'm going with the flow, not necessarily looking, content by myself, but open should something come along. I want you to notice the varying ways in which the people responded. They were not all cookie-cutter answers. Everybody has a different way of thinking about and experiencing the fact that they are not married. The next question was, what do you enjoy most about being single? Now, this one was not multiple choice, so everyone could write their own answers, long or short, and I got 150 different answers. I'm not going to share all 150, but I will share a few. The most popular answer to the question, uh, what do you enjoy most about being single, was a variation in some form of another of freedom or independence. That was the biggest and most popular answer related to that question. I like this uh, answer, though. Flexibility, this person said. For the most part, I can choose when I'm alone and when I'm around other people. Also, leftovers. 
I grew up with younger brothers, <laughs> and any food in the house was fair game to them, laugh out loud. <laughs> Here's another one. No kids and not having my heart broken. Best thing about being single. This person had obviously been married before. Here's what she said. Spending time with my friends that I missed when I was married. Freedom of choices, i.e. cooking, getting up as I please, purchasing something for myself, and not having to sneak it in the house, etc. Then this last answer to what do you enjoy about being single Nothing, absolutely nothing. The next question was, do you dislike anything about being single? And the most common answer here was a variation of loneliness or lack of companionship. But here were some unique answers that we got to this one as well. Here's one. To society, it appears as if something is wrong with me because I'm not married at this age. Here's another interesting one. I wouldn't say dislike, but I do wonder what that would be like to have a spouse. Also, I hear married people say that marriage shows you things that you need to work on in your character. I wonder what that would be also. But otherwise, I enjoy single life. How about this one? I'm fine Monday through Friday. The loneliness sets in on the weekend. People in the church are not as friendly as it was in my hometown, so I'm alone on weekends and holidays. I have a hard time reading that one. Shows we're having problems in the church. Last one on this question. Do you dislike anything about being single? This person said, I dislike the disrespect singles get and how marrieds so, and some singles think that married folks have all the answers when they are really as uh, clueless and cannot relate, especially if they have been married for five years or more. <laughs> Very interesting. The next question was, what do you hear from others, family, friends, etc., about your singleness? And the most popular answer was a variation of, when are you getting married or why are you still single? Another respondent had this to say, though, entirely too much. You know, the question was, what do you hear from others? <laughs> Entirely too much. <laughs> Last official question was this. What are some misconceptions about being single that you'd correct if you had the chance? I was actually most interested in the answers to this question. It was the thing that made me most curious. What are some of the misconceptions about being single that you would correct if you had the chance? I found this response interesting that single women are interested in married men or just any man. We have standards, and when people find out at church that you're single, they separate themselves from you, and you become invisible. Lord have mercy. Another similar one. Married women diss us socially for the most part, assuming singles are a threat to them wanting their husbands, so this, this is so disheartening and unfair to generalize a single woman's character. Here's another one. Being single is a choice, not a curse. It is a time for a person to love them and develop a better relationship with their maker. Another one. That we are dying from loneliness. Not true! Exclamation <laughs> point. 
This person mentioned several things, but I picked this part out. I think she listed about four different things, but I picked this, this one line, that we can't fully understand God's love unless we get married and have kids. I'm going to talk about that during this sermon. And I saw several answers along these lines. I have money to burn and unlimited time and freedom to do what I want. Apparently, that's a big misconception that married people have about singles, that they all have money to burn and time and freedom to do whatever they want. Very interesting, these survey results. Being single in the 21st century is complex and multifaceted and definitely not the same for everybody. Who says amen to that from their homes today? (laughs) So we should acknowledge from the outset that this is by no means a one-size-fits-all situation, and we would do well to start treating it as such. Singleness is not a syndrome to be solved or a curse to be reversed, and it's not a disease to be cured. It's just another reality of life, sometimes for a season, and sometimes for some people, it's for a lifetime. And I wonder aloud to myself, does the Bible have anything to say on this subject? I believe it does. If it didn't, we'd be in trouble today. So I want to go to the Word of God, and I want to see what Scripture has to say to me and to us about this subject. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 10 and reading to verse 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 10 and reading to verse 14. The Bible says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. Who says amen to God's word today? These are the words of Jeremiah, the prophet of God, to his people Israel. And there are some interesting facts about the prophet that we might like to know. For one, Jeremiah was a priest, a member of the household of Hilkiah. His prophetic ministry began in 626 B.C. and ended sometime after 586 B.C. He was considered primarily a prophet of doom. Most prophets were unliked because they had to deliver difficult messages from God. But how much more unlike would you be if you are a prophet of doom? What made it worse was his name. The exact meaning of his name is not certain, but some scholars suggest Jeremiah could mean the Lord throws, either in the sense of hurling the prophet into a hostile world, or, which is more likely, throwing down the nations in divine judgment for their sins. So he didn't have many friends and was therefore very lonely. His closest companion was his faithful secretary named Baruch, who wrote down Jeremiah's words 
as the prophet dictated them. Jeremiah was given to self-analysis and self-criticism. If you've ever read his book, you'll know that. He was an introspective man in constant turmoil with deep struggles in his innermost being. So often characterized by his anguish of spirit that he was well known as the weeping prophet. And did you know Jeremiah was single? Did you know that? For the Lord commanded Jeremiah not to marry or raise children because of the impending divine judgment on Judah would sweep away the next generation. And here in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah's book, we find that the prophet has written a letter to the people in Israel. And here's how verse 1 of his letter reads. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, to the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet sent a letter to Israel's leadership to instruct them in what would happen to them next. First, he tells them that God has given them over to their enemies because of their waywardness and disobedience. And as a result, they find themselves in exile of the Babylonian captivity. And because you brought this on yourselves, God says, you should not resist your captors, but instead settle down into houses and plant gardens and eat what they produce. He tells them, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, live in your captor's land as if it is your own. You know why? Because in approximately 70 years, I will come to you and will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back. Jeremiah 29.10. Now, you must understand that this would be quite a feat for Israel to accomplish because of the way they felt about their Babylonian captors. They were sworn and bitter enemies. All the things that Babylon stood for, all their gods and all their idol worship, all their teachings and practices were diametrically opposed to Israel's way of life. So the very thought of doing this would be more than undesirable, to say the least. No way they wanted to live with their captors. I can imagine Israel feeling miserable about the prospect of doing such a thing. But I can also uh, read the anticipation in Baruch's quill as he writes what Jeremiah is dictating. Jeremiah says in his letter that God will fulfill his gracious promise to, to his chosen people, Israel, and they can count on it because God never makes a promise that he does not keep. And I'm so excited about that fact today. What about you? God is a promise-keeping God. My wife, April, grew up with a father who was just like that. Her father was very big on his word, so much so that April has very little memory of her childhood wherever her dad would say he was going to do something and did not do it. If he said he was going to do it, Pop was going to do it every single time. She can't even remember one situation where her dad said he was going to do something, and he did not do it. Now, my question is, if that's her earthly father, 
and he is human and frail and sinful, how much more will our Heavenly Father, when he makes a promise, keep that promise to us? If Bernard Mendinghall can do it, certainly God in heaven can do it. Who says amen to that today? If God says he'll do it, we can take it to the bank. So there are three things that I want to point out today that Jeremiah says to Israel to encourage them, and I believe it'll be an encouragement to us as well. The first thing is found in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. Chapter, Jeremiah 29, 11. The Bible says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a what, everybody? A future. That's right. You can say it at home. Just say it out loud. No problem. Here's the first thing that we learn. The first word of encouragement that we get from this text. God has a plan for you. I'm excited about that today. In fact, I want you to repeat after me. Repeat after me from your homes. God has a, God's plan for me is real and sure. I don't know if you meant that. God's plan for me is real and sure. Now, it's not immediately obvious, but God is being pretty emphatic here through the prophet Jeremiah. You see, Israel must be feeling neglected at this point. They know about the prophecies about being delivered, and they understand what God is saying, but it's been quite a while since God has moved on their behalf. So they must be feeling neglected and a little bit forgotten about. Israel thinks God doesn't have them on his mind, and that's not actually true. For God says, I know the plans I have for you. Now, he says I twice, and you may not notice that, but one commentator expresses it this way. He says, I know the purposes which I purpose concerning you is the utterance of Jehovah. In the former clause, I is emphatic in both places, and the phrase is parallel to the formula, by myself have I sworn, saith Jehovah. The future of Israel was guaranteed by the divine consistency. So in other words, God knows his own mind. I know the plans I have for you. Of course I know the plans I have for you. They're my plans. And just because you haven't seen me move mightily lately doesn't mean I've forgotten about you, and it doesn't mean I don't have a plan. His everlasting purpose for his chosen people could not be set aside. God does not cast his people to the side. Israel's hope is guaranteed by God's self-knowledge of his own gracious counsel. I know my own plans for you. So here's the part that you may not want to hear. Here it is. Or maybe you already know it, and actually you're trying to help others to understand this about you. If God is a God of love, and I believe he is, and if you are following God and you believe he has a plan for you and you may be following his plan right now, my question is, what if not being married is part of God's plan for your life right now? If God has a plan and you want to follow his plan, then maybe God has you right where he wants you right now. Your singleness is not a curse or a lack of a spouse is not punishment. God's plan for you is to prosper you and not harm you, to give you hope and a future. God's plan for you is real 
and it is sure. You've got to believe that no matter what you're going through. You know, it's funny because I'm a planner, and it turns out that uh, during this time, um, my wife actually kind of um, brought it out to me recently that uh, during this quarantine, I- I've been a little harder to get along with. <laughs> as I'm sure things are for you in your home. If you're in a house with anybody else, then I'm sure you're having trouble with that. But if you're at home alone, I'm not sure. Maybe this is a good thing, maybe it's not. I have no idea. But in my case, it's a lot harder. I think I am worse at certain things, and because I plan normally, it's like because so many things are out of control around the world, it seems like I've become more of a control freak during this time. I've actually been trying to control more of my environment And and my wife is telling me it's too much at home. So I'm trying to do a little bit better with that. But here's what I'm saying. I'm a planner and I'm a human being. And sometimes my plans are very detailed. And I try to follow my plans exactly as I have them laid out. And you know what? If everything goes according to my plan, that's usually where I'm the happiest. (laughs) But it turns out that sometimes my plan may not align with God's plan. God says, I have a plan for you. I know my plans for you. Maybe it's time for us to get out of the way and set our plans to the side and allow God's plan to shine forth. Let God show us his plan. Follow it, no matter what it says, even if it means things we don't like during this season of our lives. God has a plan. And maybe he has us right where he wants us right now, in the palm of his hand, in the middle of his plan. Who says amen to that today? Our second one. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says this. When you call on me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's the second thing that we learn. Ultimate fulfillment comes from God alone. I probably should have said, ultimate fulfillment comes through God alone. Repeat after me at home. Humans don't complete me. They complement me. If you believe that, say amen. Notice the way that Jeremiah characterizes the words from God. God tells the people that even though they have been unfaithful to him in the past, If they really desire to be with him and seek him with their whole heart, he will reunite with them. Sounds like a love story, doesn't it? Well, that's deliberate because the plan of salvation is just one big love story. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has always loved us and has been working through history to win us back to himself. And the sad reality is that we don't know that the key to ultimate fulfillment is found only through Him. But we spend so much of our time trying to find our fulfillment in other human beings. You remember the movie Jerry Maguire, don't you? Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger. It was, I believe, a hit in the year 1996. That was my freshman year of college. Man, I'm old. Jerry Maguire was a sports agent, and um, he has an attack of conscience in the movie and uh, realizes that he 
he doesn't do business in a, in a moral or ethical way, and so he decides to change it. And uh, in the process, he falls in love with a single mom named Dorothy, played by Renelle Zellweger. And perhaps the most famous and most memorable scene in the movie is when Jerry looks longingly into uh, Dorothy's eyes and says, full of emotion, this phrase, you complete me. You remember that phrase? It's the best part of the movie. Everybody loves it. It's heartwarming, and the scene is moving, but that phrase actually isn't true. I know what the writers mean to portray in this scene, but what I'm telling you is that human beings do not find their ultimate completion in other human beings. Yes, my wife and I complement each other, but we do not complete each other, not in the ultimate sense. If that were true, then every single person who ever walked the earth is incomplete and can never find completion unless they get married. That includes Jeremiah, that includes Paul, that includes Jesus. And there's no way that can be true. There's no way you can tell me that Jesus, the Savior of the world, walked on this earth and was incomplete because he never got married. No, we find our ultimate fulfillment and completion in God. We should be spending our time trying to connect with God in a deeper and more meaningful way every day. And that goes for all humanity, whether you're single or married. In fact, April and I tell couples all the time that they are in serious trouble if they're looking for each other to find ultimate fulfillment and completion. That can never come from another sinful human being. That can only come from God. Spend your time trying to connect with God in a meaningful way, and you will find ultimate completion even if you're not married. You have a special advantage, in fact, during this time, during this season. In fact, you can look at it that way. Because you can go to another level with God. He's calling you as he did his people Israel. And he's saying, if you call on me, I will listen. You can have an undivided heart that is solely for God during this season of your life. And if the day comes when God blesses you with a spouse of his choosing, you'll be more than ready to accept that person because you found a way to put God first in your heart. And now you can accept another person into your life. Take advantage of this time. Ultimate fulfillment comes from God alone. Last one. Jeremiah 29 and verse 14. The Bible says this. Oh. Here it is. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. Here's the last one. This is the one I'm most excited about. Here it is. God will give back what was taken from us. Repeat after me. God knows how to restore. Who says amen to that today? Now I want you to listen to that exact same text, but this time in the English Standard Version. The Bible says... I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven, I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place 
from which I sent you into exile. God is saying to his people that he knows just how to restore them, and he will do just that if they would only trust him. God is an expert in restoration. He can give you back what was taken. He'll take you right back to the place where you lost it to give it all back to you again. One of my favorite shows is on uh, HGTV. It's a show called Windy City Rehab. In fact, uh, we watch this a lot in the family. Um, There is a, uh, I guess she's the designer. Um, um, Her name is Allison Victoria. And she specializes in uh, rehabbing homes in the Chicago area. But what I love about what she does is that she likes to restore homes, uh, many of the older features in the homes, and she makes sure that she includes the original architecture and the original structure just updated. So the homes are not just restored, but they have the characteristics of the original intent. She loves the city of Chicago, and she feels that the way that it looked back in the 1800s or whatever is the way it should still look now. So she tries to update the homes in such a way that it still has that old charm and old feel to it. Beloved, it's just like this with God. One thing I love about God is that sometimes he will take you right back to the place where you lost everything just so that he can give it right back to you. In other words, God doesn't necessarily tear down the old thing and give you something brand new. He does do that for you in salvation. He will make you brand new. That is true. But there are other times when you have lost something in your life and God will restore it and he'll give it back to you, sometimes the way you had it, sometimes better than the way you had it. And I'm excited about that. He promised that he would do it for Israel, and he promises the same thing for you. He tells Israel, I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Well, this is encouraging if you are divorced. Maybe you were married before, and maybe you wrapped all of your self-worth into that relationship. And now that you're divorced, you don't know who you are anymore. I've got good news for you. God restores Maybe you've been spending all your time looking for another human to complete you, and you don't even know who you are. I've got good news for you. God restores. Perhaps you're so lonely that you've begun to think that God doesn't love you, and he hasn't uh, thought about you for years. I have amazing news for you. God restores. Could it be that you've sacrificed everything in your life, and now you look up and wonder what you have to show for it? Well, I want to tell you right now, you are worth everything to God, and he cares about you, and he wants to give you a mansion in glory and streets of gold and a golden crown where you can eat from the tree of life. God wants to restore everything to you, even better than you had it in the first place. And can I say this? I believe that God made us for companionship. I believe that. And he made us for community. This is, why, this is why we have friends and we like being around people because I believe God made us that way. But there's nothing wrong with you if you want to be married. Doesn't mean you're unspiritual. Doesn't mean you're desperate. And at the same time, there's also nothing wrong with you if you like being single. Doesn't make you promiscuous, and it doesn't mean you're trying to steal someone else's spouse. But what God is really after with his people 
is the, un, is the fulfilling love relationship that we are to have with him. And God says that if you seek him, he'll restore you in ways that you could never imagine. God knows how to restore. So that's it. I'm excited that God is in the restoring business. I'm excited that God has a plan for me. (laughs) I hope you're excited about that too. I'm excited that God knows what's going on exactly in my life and that right now I am right in the palm of his hand exactly where he wants me to be. I'm happy that he wants to relate to me and have a relationship with me, and I want to have that same relationship with him. So if that's you today, I want you to just raise your hand right now. You're raising your hand saying, I want to walk in the plan of God. If you know you don't have the power to do that by yourself, raise your other hand. Now look up and say, I surrender. Praise the Lord. I want to close with this. So I had a humbling experience related to this situation as I was trying to put everything together for this sermon. I did a Facebook Live. It was very short. It may have only been about three minutes. And in that Facebook Live, I made a request. I asked if anyone who was willing, if you're single, would you please reach out to me, maybe by email or something like that. I gave my email address. And I asked uh, to answer some questions. And uh, I only got one person to respond. And actually, it's funny, because I got 150 respondents to the survey, and I realized what the key was. It was anonymity. (laughs) If you responded to my Facebook Live, you would have to email me, and I'd immediately know who you are, and a person probably wouldn't feel comfortable. But with the anonymous survey, everybody did it, so that was great. Well, I got one person to respond, and this person just happened to be a family member of mine, and she emailed me, and the email was pretty detailed. She listed a lot of things that she's gone through as a single person that she would consider hardships. She also talked about ways in which she enjoys her singleness, talked about the freedom and the ability to travel and all these kinds of things. There were several things that were there that were positive and some that were negative. The funny thing was, Almost all of the negative things were related to other people, especially married people. In one of her responses to me, she said, There is this one thing that happened to me that happens all the time. She said, Sometimes people will say to me, You realize everybody at this event is going to be married, right? Are you sure you want to come? And then after that response, she put, sort of parenthetically, remind me to tell you more about this one. Hey, can you turn it down to the monitor just a little bit? Thank you. So, she says, I got to tell you about this one again a little bit later on. So I said, okay. In fact, I was excited. I read through the whole thing. And the thing that excited me most about the email was this parenthetical statement that she was going to tell me more later on about how people always say to her, Are you sure you want to come to this event? Only couples are going to be there. Well, she and I had the conversation, and we were talking, and everything was going well. And then I asked her, what was that thing that you wanted to tell me about that comment? She said, "Uh, John, it turns out you were the person who made the comment to me. (laughs) She said it very nicely. She was very gracious. 
And I had in that moment a sort of David moment. You remember when the prophet Nathan came to him and told him the story about this sheep that had been stolen and all this stuff? And then uh, 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 David ended up being angry. And the prophet said, David, you are the man. That thing hit me like a ton of bricks. I was so upset with the way that these people treat single people that I came ready to hear who that person was. And then I found that it was myself. And I said, wow. I myself am a perpetrator of the same thing. Here's what I recognized. Our church is just like that. Most of our churches do a poor job of treating single people like actual people. And that's all they want. They don't want our charity. They don't want our pity. They don't want to be felt sorry for. They want to be seen as people like everybody else. And we do a terrible job at that. Now, I can't speak for every single church. I know that most churches have that problem. But I can say for our church, Tacoma Park, we are sorry about the way that we've excluded you for years. And we're not going to do it anymore. Not deliberately. If it happens again, it'll happen accidentally. And you can call us on it and we'll make sure that we change. But we're making a commitment here at Tacoma Park that we're going to include all people. We already say it. We say it every week when we do our, our, um, um, our vision and mission. We really mean it. And now we recognize that some of us, unwittingly, are perpetrators of the same problem. Don't even realize it. We're sorry for it. We're going to make a change. I believe that God has a work for us to do in these last days. And God wants us to leverage and harness every single person who goes to our church, no matter what demographic they're from, no matter what age they're from, no matter how old they are, how young they are, what color they are, what their nationality is, what their status is, if they're married, single, divorced. God wants us to do a better job including everybody because each person's specific issue in life actually helps them to minister in a particular way. We're missing out on something if we don't harness and utilize every single person. So we're going to do it. We're committed to it. But you know what? I wonder if there's somebody who wants to make a decision right now that they are going to be serious about their relationship with God. That right now, they're going to say, you know what? I am tired of trying to live my own plan and do things my own way. I want to do things God's way. He has a plan for me, and I want to follow his plan, no matter what that is, no matter what that means. I want to follow God's plan and God's will. If that's you, I want you to just fill out one of those cards or, or, uh, or, or put something in the comments. If you're watching us on YouTube, if you're watching us on Facebook, put something there. One of our chat hosts will respond. We'll make sure we get that information. If you are, if you are on our website there is actually a response card or appeal card that you can click right now and fill out. And we'll make sure that we do whatever you say on there, whether it's pray with you or call you, maybe give you some Bible studies. Whatever it is, we believe that God has a plan for you today. and He wants you to walk in that plan. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you right now for all that you have already done. I thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I thank you for his blood. I thank you that Jesus Christ walked this earth as an unmarried person so that he could show that every single human being is worth his saving. Nobody gets away from his reach. Thank you so much for that. 
Father, I ask right now that you would bless all of us, that you would keep us, that you would make us into what you want us to be, that you would help us to be ready for your coming that we know is soon. And when you come, we want to look up and say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. And now may the very God of peace sanctify you through and through. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week at this same time, 1130. In the meantime, uh, we want you to interact with us on all of our social media platforms. You can find us on our website. If you have a desire to give, you can do it like you see on the website. Go to thetpchurch.org slash give, and we'll be ready to see you on next week. This Sabbath, the devil was busy. There were only three of us and took us a little bit longer. We had some technology issues, but we believe that God kept things going specifically because he wants us to connect. And so we hope to see you next week at this same exact time. May God bless you. We will see you then.